Well, good morning, church. Good hearty. Good morning there. I like that. It's so good to be together, to worship together, to sing together. And uh, as I said in the first service, it, it's worth repeating because it happened as well in the second service. It's nice when I, I just stop singing sometimes, not just to give everyone a break around me, but just to stop singing, to listen to you sing. And you were singing out and it was beautiful. It was good stuff, a little taste of, of heaven there. Pastor Matt Woodley tells the true story of a time when he was 10 years old and his dad, a medical doctor, received a special gift from one of his patients. It was a a beautiful globe with shiny sequins. And he says, the globe spun around on its base and played one of my dad's favorite songs. My dad proudly demonstrated how it worked. Grab it by the base, slowly wind it counterclockwise, then release it, letting it spin clockwise while playing beautiful music. He then told us all, you can touch it, but don't wind it because you might break it. Well, a week later, while my dad was at work, I found the globe and I brought it to my room. And although I heard my dad clearly say, don't wind it up, I decided to wind it up anyway. I gave it a little twist and let it play, but it only played for like five seconds. So I gave it another twist and and then another twist and five more twists and then snap. The globe separated from the base. I desperately tried to fix it. I I tried forcing the two pieces together. I tried gluing it. I tried taping it. Finally, finally, as I stared hopelessly at the two pieces of the globe, I realized it was broken beyond repair. He said, so I went into my closet, shut the door, and hid. (laughs) Sounds a lot like Genesis 3 to me. Our world is like the broken globe. It's been twisted too far, and we can't put it back together again. Relationships break. Our sexuality breaks. Our hearts break. Nations break down and go to war. Our health breaks. Our politics break. And all the glue and all the tape and all the positive thinking can't put it back together again. A few years ago, in a sermon series, we uh, traced the story of the Bible from cover to cover. And in the big picture sense of it all, we could summarize the story of the Bible with three themes. One, what is wrong with the human race? Secondly, what has God done about it? And thirdly, how will it all turn out in the end? And all three of those themes are present in the book of Romans, which is what we will be looking at over the next several months. We began our study last week in Romans, and so I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Romans. It's New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans. Now, my direction for our time in this letter to the church in Rome is the gospel changes everything. There's no doubt about the power of the gospel. 
And the more convinced of that we are, the more we will share that gospel unashamedly. For Paul said, as we looked at last week, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why isn't he ashamed of the gospel? He goes on, because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Well, how is it the power of God? Verse 17, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. God is able to put us in right standing with him because of the great exchange God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Church, we have received the righteousness of God as a gift. We cannot earn it, nor do we deserve it. And believer, you cannot mess up that right relationship and right standing with God. That's where we left off last week. Now, with that in mind, I I ask you to look with me at Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Keep in mind what I just talked about. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 speaks more of this righteousness from God. 321. But now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now what I want us to see is that Romans 3.21 flows smoothly from what we just saw in Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 about the righteousness from God where we left off last week. It bursts forth here in chapter 3 with good news. Now the temptation for any preacher would be to jump from Romans 1.17 to Romans 3.21. Oh, so much would be lost if we did that. By working through some of the tough stuff here in the section we're going to look at this morning, the bad news, if you will, it will give us a greater appreciation of the gospel. That's my hope. It even gives us a greater love for the gospel. But before we can appreciate what God has done about the problem with humanity, we have to first see what is wrong with humanity. What's wrong with people? Why is this righteousness from God needed? Why do we need the gospel? That brings us to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, the passage we're looking at this morning. And I'm going to tell you right up front, there are going to be some, some things in today's passage that are extremely difficult to hear. But remember, we're answering the question today, why do we need the gospel? All right, look with me in your Bibles, Romans chapter 1. I want to give you some principles this morning. The first principle is this. God's wrath is his righteous response to unrighteousness. God's wrath is his righteous response to unrighteousness. All right, we're picking it up in verse 18. 118. The wrath of God. You're going, oh boy, this is going to be a doozy. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness, which means our relationship with God this way, and wickedness of men, our relationship with each other this way, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, we see here the reality of God's wrath and then the reason for God's wrath. 
So let me speak to the reality of God's wrath first. Let's speak to this matter of God's wrath. Many are uncomfortable talking about God's wrath. I realize the subject of God's wrath is is a very unpopular topic. You see, we have the tendency, don't we, to construct God the way we like him. So we hear things like, maybe you've even said it, I don't like to think of God that way. I like to think of God as fill in the blank. I like to think of God as a God of love. You see, it matters that the God you believe in is the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is holy. The God of the Bible is a consuming fire. The God of the Bible is not indifferent towards sin. The God of the Bible is a God of wrath. All right. Now, to speak of God's wrath, it should not be understood as a uh, out-of-control burst of anger from the Almighty God. This is not God flying off the handle. John Murray explained God's wrath this way. He said, It is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, summarizes it this way. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. The reality of God's wrath is his righteous response to unrighteous behavior. It is a settled reaction. It is the only appropriate action of a holy God. It's really the only appropriate action of a God who loves. Now notice too, and I can't spend a lot of time here, but notice too that the wrath of God spoken of in verse 18 is a present reality. It says the wrath of God is being revealed. That's present tense. It's not merely something in the future. His wrath is being revealed. It is happening continually. Well, why this reaction? What is the reason for God's wrath being revealed? Principle number two. In every human heart is the knowledge of God. In every human heart is the knowledge of God. Now, as we come to verse 19... We see that God has put knowledge of him on display. And verse 19 really is continuing the thought of verse 18. And it says, since what may be known about God is plain to them. What could be known about God is plain to everyone. Well, how is that true? How has God made himself known to all people? Verse 20. It answers that. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. God has made himself known. How? In creation. The psalmist sang, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now, if you haven't read Psalm 19 in a while, Jot it down. Check it out this week. Spend some time meditating on Psalm 19. I've directed the community groups to do that. But if you're not part of it, go to Psalm 19 this week. Because creation, it says there and elsewhere, creation points to a creator. Why is there something rather than nothing? 
Where did the original something come from? After discovering how to clone humans, two scientists challenged God. They said, we don't need you anymore. We can make life by ourselves now. Okay, God replied, let's make a man-making contest. Let's have a man-making contest. All right, said the scientists, we'll do it like you did in the beginning. And they reached down to grab a handful of dirt to begin to form a man. Then they heard God's voice from heaven saying, wait a minute, hold on, get your own dirt. (laughs) Where did the original something come from? The vocal critic of creation, Richard Dawkins, in his book, God Delusion, speaking of the Big Bang Theory, admits that nothingness can't just explode. He goes on to comment on Darwin's theory of evolution. He says this, Darwin's theory works for biology, but not for cosmology, meaning ultimate origins. In other words, nothing times nobody can't equal everything. It'd be like thinking that an explosion in an ink factory could inadvertently produce the collected works of Shakespeare. Even Charles Goodyear, who developed a vulcanized, uh, vulcanized rubber and made a fortune on the rubber that meets the road, literally, he made tires. He had to say this, who can examine rubber and not glorify God? You see, God's not the one hiding As we saw with the boy who broke the globe beyond repair, what did he do? He went into his closet, shut the door, and hid. We are the ones hiding. There is no one, there is no one to whom God has not made himself known. And every human heart is the knowledge of God. And that is why St. Augustine spoke of the restlessness of human heart that would remain restless, and he said, until we find our rest in thee. So what must people do with that truth to what God has made known? Verse 18 tells us exactly what they're going to do with it. Push it down. The reason for God's wrath is against those who suppress the truth. Verse 18. Now the word suppress uh, literally means to strongly hold something down. It requires great effort to do so. Think of it as, as trying to hold down a beach ball underwater. Right, and you're trying to keep it down, and it keeps wanting to come to the service, and you keep pushing it down. That's suppression of the truth. Suppression is not the same as ignorance. Near the end of uh, World War II, the first town with a concentration camp that the Allied forces liberated was Ordriff, Germany. Allied soldiers got there before the Nazis could get rid of any of the evidence of the camp, and the American soldiers walked into that camp to find hundreds upon hundreds of dead bodies. It is said that when General Patton arrived in Ordiff, he promptly vomited upon witnessing the scene. It was too horrific for words. Patton knew that the German people needed to know what had happened, so he, he brought the mayor of Ordiff and his wife to see the camp. He then ordered every able body in the town to dig graves for each body and hold the funeral for the deceased. After the funeral, Patton found out the mayor and his wife had hung themselves. And before their death, they apparently left a note that read, 
We didn't know, but we knew. We didn't know, but we knew. That's suppression. It's been said this way about suppression. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. You see, see, atheism is a choice. Humanism is a choice. It's really much easier to deal with Mother Nature, some invention, than to deal with the Almighty Living Creator. I mean, isn't that it really for us? I mean, the truth, it's too uncomfortable and it would demand a willingness to change and a submission to it, so we, we, we push it down. I mean, it keeps popping up and we keep pushing it down. We don't want him when we're on the internet. We don't want him in our kitchen or our living room or our bedroom or when we're driving or when we're doing a certain activity, so we push the truth down. We'd rather push it down than lose control by submitting to him. We know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, jot it down, you can check it out later. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, around verse 11, 12, somewhere around there. It tells that God has placed eternity in our hearts. You see, no one, when they stand before God, will be able to say, it never entered my mind that you existed. It never occurred to me. Because in every human heart is the knowledge of God. Principle number three. The downward spiral of sin begins with ingratitude and ends with idolatry. Okay, it's going to be some tough stuff here. We're going to talk about sin. Reminded me of a, of a husband who went home after church. And uh, wasn't a man, man of few words. His wife didn't attend and she said, so... So what was, what was the sermon about? And he said, sin. She said, well, wh- wh- what did he say about sin? He said, well, he's against it. <laughs> well, we're going to talk a little bit more about it than that. Look at verse 21. Let's see the spiral here. This is tough stuff here, guys. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their fu- foolish hearts were darkened. Now, what is it about not giving thanks to God that begins this downward spiral of sin? Well, a refusal to give thanks is living in the illusion that we are self-sufficient. To not give thanks is a way of not acknowledging our dependence on God. And what does that lead to? Look at verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals, and reptiles. I mean, have you noticed how smart people do dumb things? That's kind of, <laughs> he had something in mind. But that's kind of the human condition, right? Smart people refusing to worship God and then trivialize themselves into the silliness of worshiping created things over the creator. I mean, how dumb is that? As Eugene Peterson put it, They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in his hands for cheap figurines you can buy at any roadside stand. See, once we suppress the truth, because we don't want to bow down and admit that we're a mess left to ourselves, we then exchange the truth for a lie. That's what verse 25 says. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. 
See, refusal to acknowledge God and worship Him sets everything else in motion. I mean, have you ever gone to, to Hannaford's or another grocery store and, and you pick that grocery cart with a bent wheel? It seems like I always get that one. And not only does it squeak as you're pushing it, the thing kind of wants to go a certain direction, doesn't it? I mean, it keeps wanting to go to the left, perhaps. And like, no matter what you do, the thing wants to just keep going to the left. And you try not to wipe out any kids or that elderly person or run into the shelves. You're trying to keep it straight. It just keeps wanting to go in a certain direction. That's our hearts. We're bent towards idolatry. We've curved away from God because we looked at him and said, I, I kind of like to do things on my own. So now we find ourselves consistently trying to go straight here and we keep pulling in a certain direction further and further away from God. We refuse to acknowledge our need of him. So that restless heart within looks to plug into something that will give us meaning and purpose because people don't stop worshiping. They just change what they worship. G.K. Chesterton said it this way. When you stop worshiping God, you're not worshiping nothing. You'll worship anything. We'll either worship the creator or some created thing because we all worship something. We live for something. Idolatry is inevitable. John Calvin said that our hearts are like idol factories. It may not be some statue, but an idol can be in the shape of uh, sexual desires or, or, or greed or approval or wanting control. You know, an idol can even be a church. An idol can even be your spouse or your children. There are endless idols to choose from. And I really think this is the heart of this section of Scripture. I mean, we like to camp on certain sins mentioned here, and I'm going to touch on them in a moment. But the bottom line is, whatever is the most important thing in your life, that you have to have it, your identity is wrapped up in it, it's the thing that makes your life worthwhile, that you worship. It's your idol. Check it out. See if it sticks. Now, so verse 25 then. How is verse 25 true in your life? What is it that you exchange the truth of God to fill that hole within? What is it you worship and serve rather than the creator? What is it you feel you must have to be somebody? To give your life meaning? Or to look for safety or comfort or completion? What is it that gives you kind of control of your life? That may be your idol. We just haven't taken the next step to go buy the materials to uh, make a physical representation. But it's something we worship. We can't live without it. Because whatever captures your allegiance just might be your idol and mine too. And you see, it says here, God gave them over to this. Three times in this section, we see the phrase, God gave them over. Well, what is with this God giving them over? Is it saying God has given up on them or that God's just plain given up? Well, I don't have time to go into this in great detail, but the thought here is that God took his hands off and let us have what we wanted. Consider this. One of the worst things that could happen 
is God give us what we want. God's wrath is being revealed all the time when he gives us over to that which we want and then we drown in that sea of addiction that we choose. And when it says in verse 24 that God gave them over to their sinful desires, as the NIV says it, it really is better just translated as desires. The, the NIV supplied the word sinful here. The word is simply desires, not necessarily sinful. Now, in all fairness to the NIV, the, there really isn't any good English word to capture that meaning they have desire. But the thought is of super desires or desires that become uncontrollable. The desire itself might be good, but when it controls us and we start serving it, that becomes problematic. And then the downward spiral. These verses here describe every dying culture. All right, verse 26. We're not out of the woods yet. Because of this, meaning they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, as Pastor Alistair Begg loves to say, you're smart people. You can figure out what this is saying. But let me say this. When it speaks here of natural and unnatural, it's not referring to someone's subjective sense of their sexuality. It's referring to God's purpose for us and his created order. So when someone says, but God made me this way, that's not entirely correct. Yes, there is a sense, and you can work this out here, but there is a sense in which this orientation might reside deep in your being, but that's the result of the corruption of our bodies because of sin. Because God made people in his image, male and female. And this is his good design. Homosexuality is against God's natural design. Listen, though, church, that doesn't mean we need to go around bashing it. We don't have to have hatred in our heart. And staying true to the thrust of this passage, idolatry is the root problem of our lives, not homosexuality or any other sin. Listen, the deepest problem of our lives, whether we're heterosexual or homosexual, is that we have exchanged God for idols. And our failure to worship God is our deepest disorder beneath all the brokenness of this world. Therefore, what we need first and foremost is not to repair our disordered sexuality, but return to a right worship of God. Be careful that we don't become one issue focused. Even if you're heterosexual, listen, you might have to repent of some things. Lust, pornography, idolatry in your own marriage. John Newton said this, very convicting when I read this. He said, the worst thing about a good marriage is the problem of idolatry. Meaning, you can make idols out of each other. See the downward spiral here. Don't miss it. In gratitude to idolatry, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And then we worship created things. And then God hands us over to act out externally. And he mentions 
more of these external acts in verses 29 through 31. I mean, it's quite a list here. We don't have time to look at the catalog of sin listed in verses 29 to 31, but listen, don't stop at verse 27. Suffice it to say in verses 29 to 31, God's handing people over to sin is not limited to our sexual disordering, but it pervades every area of our lives. Relationships, to our words, to our hearts, to our actions. We see here the answer to what is wrong with the world. But watch out for self-righteousness. Legend has it that G.K. Chesterton, the famous philosopher and theologian, was asked by a newspaper reporter, what's wrong with the world? Well, as he gave his answer, he skipped over all the expected answers. He said nothing about corrupt politicians or ancient rivalries between warring nations. He didn't speak about the greed of the rich and the covetousness of the poor. He left aside street crime and unjust laws and inadequate education. What's wrong with the world, he said. They, he, they asked him, what's wrong with the world? Well, as the story goes, Chesterton responded with just two words. What's wrong with the world? I am. I am. Because looking at this list, you might go, well, that's not me. That's not me even down further, further on. It talks about a murderer. Not me. Heartless. Not me. But have you ever gossiped? In the same list. Ever, ever disobeyed your parents? Ever been boastful? Be careful about self-righteousness. From big sins to small sins. Verse 32 tells us those who do such things, those who do such things deserve death. Well, pastor, that's kind of depressing. (laughs) Yep, I can hear it now. Someone asked you, how was church today? Your answer, well, the pastor spoke on how bad we are and that we're all under God's wrath. (laughs) Want to come next week? Got to remember the question we're answering today. Why do we need the gospel? This is why we all need the gospel. Principle number four. The only answer for the problem of sin is the gospel. It is critical that we have the right diagnosis so we can find the right cure. What is the diagnosis? All of us, without exception, want to run our lives without God. Left to ourselves, we exchange the truth of God for a lie, we worship created things over the Creator, and we act out externally from our hearts that are selfish and corrupt. Before God, we are all without excuse. What has God done about it? God inserted himself into his creation to be our savior. God poured out all his wrath on his son Jesus Christ so that we might become the righteousness of God. Sin's penalty has been paid in full by Jesus Christ. And this tough section of scripture that we might rather avoid highlights our need for someone else to save us because we cannot save ourselves. And only as we face up to the problem of our own sinful heart and admit our predicament 
can we then experience the wonder of his provision in the person of Jesus Christ? It's the power of God for salvation. It is the gospel that changes everything. Pastor Matt Chandler tells of a time when he and a couple of his friends invited a young woman named Kim to a Christian concert. Matt Chandler had been speaking with her about, uh, about Scripture, about the Lord, and so he thought this would be a good opportunity to bring Kim to this concert. Matt was hopeful that Kim would come to Christ that night. However, what occurred, he said, was a train wreck. After the singer got done, the preacher took the stage, and he says, disaster ensued. His big illustration was to take out this single red rose, and he smelled the rose dramatically. He caressed its petals and talked about how beautiful this rose was and how it had been freshly cut that morning. He then threw the rose out into the crowds. He encouraged everyone, now pass that single rose all around. And as they passed this rose around, the preacher started giving stats on uh, promiscuity and, and sex before marriage. And, and really it was fear-mongering. As he neared the end of his message, the preacher asked for the rose back. And by now the rose was broken, as you can imagine, and drooping, and the petals were falling off. And he held up this now ugly rose for all to see, and his big finish, his, his big crescendo was this. Now who in the world would want this? Matt Chandler said he wanted to jump out of his seat and yell, Jesus wants the rose! Matt didn't hear from Kim after that for several weeks. One day her mother called Matt to inform him that Kim had been in an accident. So Matt Chandler went to visit her. And then Matt says this, in the middle of our conversation, seemingly out of nowhere, she asked me, do you think I'm a dirty, broken rose? My heart sank inside of me, he says. I then began to explain to her the whole weight of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus wants the rose. It's Jesus' desire to save and redeem and restore the dirty rose. So you may be here today and you kind of see yourself as broken beyond repair. You may look at your life with shame and regret or maybe some decision you just made. You may feel like a dirty, broken rose. There is a Savior, Jesus Christ, who took all your shame, all your guilt, all your sin upon himself so that you can experience his forgiveness and you'll be given a new lease on life. Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel. Jesus wants the rose. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. We just pray that you would take it to heart. We'd understand what it is you're saying to us. We'd personalize it to our lives and that God, you would have your way in us around this. We thank you for your forgiveness that we can sing as we're going to sing right now about your amazing love, about your forgiveness, about that you were forsaken so that we can be accepted. May we bask in that, remember that. As we walk away from here today, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.